0: This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 24th of June, 2020. The topic is exploring vulnerabilities and barriers to help seeking for healthcare workers. On the panel we have Dr. Jan Orman, GP services consultant at the Black Dog Institute. Dr. Basia Radlinska, clinical psychologist at Headspace Harbour and lecturer in psychology at Southern Cross University and Ben Vinder, a GP and our lived experience representative. Chairing this session is Dr. Carol Newell.
1: Uh, welcome, everyone, to exploring vulnerabilities and barriers to help seeking for health workers. My name is Carol Newell. Um, before we get started, let's pay our acknowledgement to Country. Um, The Black Dog Institute would like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as Australia's first people of this nation and the traditional custodians. We value their cultures, identities and continuing connection to our country, waters, kin and community. We pay our respect to Elders both past, present and to the future and are committed to making a positive co- contribution to mental health and wellbeing of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia. And we want to welcome any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today in our audience. All right. So welcome to Expert Insights podcasts podcast um, for health professionals. Um, this particular this podcast will be recorded, um, and you can actually find us on YouTube as well as on SoundCloud and also on our website, um, which is on our slide here. Um, my name is Carol Newell. I'm going to be your host tonight. I'm a clinical psychologist on the North Shore of New South Wales. I'm actually broadcasting um, from my clinic today. i a facilitator for the Black Dog Institute. This is just a gentle reminder for everyone to um, please do post your questions as you're listening um, into our Q&A section. So you can, you've got a little button on the bottom. Um, and we will be monitoring it uh, closely throughout the talk. Um, this includes all the panellists as well. Uh, so do keep an eye on it. We would love you to ask questions because we've put aside some time um, to address uh, the questions you have as you're listening to this podcast. Uh, this is today's panellists. We've got Dr Jan Orman, Dr Basha Ratlinska, and Dr Benvinda Zabragas. I hope I've pronounced that correctly, Benvinda.
2: Yeah, Zabragas.
1: So I'm actually going to stop share for a minute and pull our faces up because I would love for each of our panel members um, to introduce themselves and to tell us a little bit about their expertise in this area before we get started on the Q&A component. So we'll just stop sharing now, and we might get started uh, with Barsha. So Barsha, you're currently on mute, so I need you to unmute and introduce yourself.
3: Hi, everyone. Welcome. My name is Dr. Barsha Radlinska. I'm a clinical psychologist uh, and the clinical leader for Headspace in Coffs Harbour. Uh, I'm also a researcher and lecturer in psychology at Southern Cross University, Um, and it's a real pleasure to be invited here this evening. Thank you. Welcome, uh, Barsha. Next, we have Dr.
1: Benvinda Zavragas.
2: Hi, um, I, my name is Benvinda, um, also known as Ben. Um, I'm a general practitioner uh, from Sydney. Uh, I had my own surgery for many years. Um, now I do mainly uh, locoming, often in country and remote areas. Um, My experience uh, with uh, mental health uh, has been a personal one, primarily having been diagnosed quite a few years back um, and uh, also a a deep interest in mental health issues in my patients. And
4: also thank you for inviting me. Oh, welcome. Um, And next we have Dr. Jan Orman everybody, I'm a GP by training with a special interest in mental health. I've worked for the Black Dog Institute for a good deal over a decade as a facilitator in the professional education program and for the last, since 2013, I've been GP services consultant in charge of developing and delivering the uh, resources that are available through the Black Dog's arm of the E-Mental Health in Practice project, so that's me.
1: Thank you, Jan, jo, for joining us tonight. Uh, let's get started with our first question. The first question is for Barsha. What led you into research on medical health professionals' mental health? Because you sort of veered into this, um, in this into this area
3: um, while you're still living in Sydney. Yes, yeah. Well, I think actually probably the biggest thing that drew me when I first started working um, for Gen Health in COPS, which runs both the Women's Health Centre and Headspace. Um, some colleagues, doctors at the Women's Health Centre, were also involved in teaching at the rural clinical school. And they had identified that um, they would like to support some of the students at the rural clinical school in terms of their own well-being. And at the time, the Beyond Blue um, big research project had just been released, identifying some of the needs of young doctors in terms of their mental health. So we put together a multidisciplinary uh, program for the medical students at the time, with a dietitian and a physiotherapist, and a clinical psychologist and a number of doctors. And we developed some research around the project, so trying to look at look at like predictors and markers of well-being amongst um, medical students and later junior medical officers. And I have to admit, when I went into it, I was really naive at um the extent of the issue you know i had read a lot of the research but it wasn't until we really started to take those measurements ourselves and realized that for some of these doctors when we ran the depression and anxiety stress scale we administered the scale to everybody who participated in our project And we found that up to a third of these uh, young people, and they are, you know, really young people when they're students, were reporting um, scores that were moderate, severe, or extremely severe on these subscales. And once when we ran the program, we had a three-month follow-up time point, which happened to fall right in the beginning uh, of their exam period. And at that point, it was 50% of the sample who were reporting scores that were moderate, severe, or extremely severe in terms of their depression, anxiety, and stress scores. And I think at the time I was really taken aback by that. It really drew my attention to the um, scale of the issue in terms of the well-being of people right at the beginning of their medical career.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting. 50%. That's quite high. Um, do you find that surprising, Jan? When you hear those prevalence rates, because they're junior doctors, so mm-hmm.
4: are they As, absolutely not in the slightest? You you have to have been there to understand just what kind of hell being a junior doctor is. Um, and I think it's actually getting worse rather than than better. Would that be your sense of it, Ben?
2: Yeah, I do. I think so. Um, With uh, the external factors um, outside of medicine itself, impacting um, when. I graduated uh, in 1982 and in those days um, basically it it had its own issues already, Um, but now with the highly litigious uh, society that we live in, um, that's uh, that's an added burden. Um, So, uh, I think with those little things around it and the way that the course is structured, um, effectively, I think it is getting uh, worse, uh, like you say, mm.
4: And if you move that a step forward to general practice training, the the stresses do not reduce with general practice training. So if you add the stresses of medicine, looking after people's lives, life and death situations, if you add to that the problems of training uh, and the, the stresses associated with that, and then all the red tape you've got to deal with and these medico legal issues, of watching your back all the time to make sure someone's not interpreting you, you poorly or, or inclined to be litigious towards you, then there's no question about it. It's very stressful. I'm just wondering, and uh, Carol, do, do you know how this applies to allied health practitioners? Um, well, I think that, you know, it, any,
1: any course that requires quite a high score to get into and quite competitive, I assume, um, might also be applicable. What do you think, Barsha?
3: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and to jump forward a little bit, I know we were planning to talk about this further, but I think it's relevant here that um, programs such as medicine, and I think it's true in clinical psychology as well, and a number of other uh, healthcare professions that require high entry scores, also tend to be attractive to people who are quite driven, who might have um, underlying um, perfectionistic or self-critical traits. Um, Which, are, of course, it's not black and white. It's not that that is fundamentally bad. Um, It does allow people to be driven in terms of their professions, but it also comes with a dark side of perhaps, um, yeah, a lot of internal self-criticism, feeling not good enough and potentially fueling some of those really difficult emotions that come along with the profession.
1: Yeah. Basha, you're doing some research in this area where you're looking at different traits or values that people have that make them particularly vulnerable um, when they're in the healthcare profession. Um, So what are those traits um, that you think, you know, might, might contribute to these barriers?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. So in terms of some of the individual factors, and I just sort of preface my response here to say that, you know, in starting to talk about individual factors, there are, of course, many um, environmental and organisational factors that play a big part. So please don't feel that what I'm saying is that the onus is on the individual to build personal resilience um, when organisations are, of course, difficult. Um, But in terms of some of the traits that Um, that I'm personally interested in researching and that we see kind of across the board. um, Perfectionism, which is one that I mentioned earlier, Um, so perhaps tied to an idea that um, I might feel like no matter what I do, I'm not quite meeting my own standards, no matter what I do, I'm I'm not feeling good enough, um, which drives people to achieve, but also drives internal self-criticism. Another trait that we tend to see a lot of and we talk about with, uh, with um, medical students and junior medical officers is imposter syndrome, um, which is something that's very prevalent uh, for young doctors. So feeling like, you know, when will people realise that I have no idea what I'm doing? Um, in my profession, which can be really challenging. And finally, we also uh, research self-sacrifice. So, there are many people in healthcare professions um, who might have a personal experience of having cared for someone throughout their life, uh, and this is somehow associated with their choice of going into a healthcare profession. Um, And this can be really difficult uh, for someone who might be sacrificing in every aspect of their life when they're at work and then when they come home, you know, um, and and might not necessarily notice uh, the need to treat themselves with the same level of compassion uh, as they do for their patients. You know, you mentioned things like
1: imposter syndrome and self-sacrifice, and, you know, those are traits, I wonder, which might be more linked to a specific gender than one or the other. What do you think, Benvinda? We talked a little bit about, you know, whether, whether something like gender might, might play a role in terms of healthcare professionals, you know, being in this particular discipline, which is high-achieving and re- demands quite a bit of sacrifice as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um... Well, obviously, uh, both genders, uh, you know, will be represented um, effectively, as Basia was saying. um, I think uh, there's been quite a bit of um, research done on the issues of the character traits that, um, you know, sort of healthcare professions uh, do attract. And it's often those particular character traits of perfectionism and high achievement and so forth, be they um, you know, uh, uh, be they female or male, that often do get attracted and do get uh, spots in you know, sort of medicine and all the allied health. And it's then found that it is those very character traits that um, end up in the long run being um you know the the exact things that work against the person when they in when it comes to self help to identifying mental health issues or you know even just illness or, um you know in themselves now with the actual gender difference obviously i i Personally, being a female, um, if this I found throughout my career and with a lot of, um, I, I speak for a, a lot of uh, females that I've come across, not only doctors, um, that the whole issue of mixing in, um, you know, sort of a profession um, such as psychology where uh, compassion fatigue as time goes on, becomes a factor or in medicine and trying to mix that in with what a lot of women, uh, you know, will aspire to once, you know, from childhood to have a family, to have kids, um, there's that. I found that that was, for me, an a, absolute icebreaker in the building up of the you know the underlying things that led to you know sort of the rearing of um of symptoms and so forth with my own depression and um I had my own practice it was a solo practice at the time um my mother um being an ethnic you know got well like any other mother but particularly as an ethnic ethnic mum, she loved taking care of children. They paved the way that paved the way to me being able to escape to the office for many reasons professionally um, for it was a, a good way to, to escape outside of my own issues um, and with that then came the guilt. Of not being there for um, seeing my my first child take her her first steps, um, and I got this lovely phone call from grandma. Uh, I was in between patients. Um, and my receptionist put her through, and she said, "Oh, look, Jackie just took her first step." And I was like, "Oh, that's wonderful!" And then everything just crumbled inside. So I think gender-wise, as a female, that be it w- what we uh, put on ourselves, or what uh, there's we we think is a societal expectation, I think that plays
4: a, a big role. We do know from the figures around suicide in young doctors that that women are more vulnerable than men are, um, certainly to suicide. yeah, and given that the, in the population men are more likely to, Um, uh, die by suicide than than women are, that that's probably a very significant thing. On the subject of self-compassion and guilt, I just noticed that not only did Ben bring it up, but also Murray Rose brought it up in the Q&A box, and that is how does she stop feeling guilty about taking time out for herself when she is um, supposed to be writing reports, and that's certainly something I think a lot of us share.
1: Yeah. So what, how do you take time out? I mean, is presenteeism a real
4: problem in healthcare professionals? Mm, absolutely, yes. Does everyone know that presenteeism means going to work when you shouldn't, when you're really not well enough to go to work, and particularly when you're mentally not well enough to go to work, and it applies to the entire workforce. But how many, uh, how many doctors you do you know who actually take the day off when they feel sick? or when they feel mentally unwell, not too many because we're trained that our needs are, are not nearly as important as our patients' needs. And if we're women, if our needs aren't as important as our children's needs and our partners' needs and, in fact, everybody in the entire world's needs. Yeah.
1: So do we have any tips, tips for Mari Rose from the GPs in terms of taking time off and not doing those clinical nurse does anybody know how to break that habit of not feeling guilty?
4: Mm. I reckon if you're not getting time to do your reports, you're seeing too many patients. Is that um, fair to say? I mean, and that might be a way in which you're guilty of not looking after yourself properly. Yeah? Am
1: I being unreasonable? No, not at all. I think, you know, one of the ways to think about presenteeism is that um, we all need a rest to be more productive, you know, so actually having that rest. And then coming back, you're doing the work in one hour instead of the three hours, you're stretching it out so you're not being particularly
4: effective. And just because one of your colleagues is seeing 15 patients or clients a day, well, let's talk about clients because I'm talking about psychologists, just because they're seeing 15 clients a day doesn't mean that you have to see 15 clients a day because it's very individual what you have capacity for, um, emotional capacity particularly. I think we've all probably got the intellectual capacity and, and perhaps the energy to do it most of the time, but do we have the emotional capacity to do that workload? I think one of the deadliest things is comparing yourself with somebody, everybody else even. And I noticed, Basia, that in your um review you didn't talk about competitiveness as a personality characteristic yeah, that led to it's really interesting. Mm.
3: And and my reaction to this question about the guilt, I thought it was a really interesting question as well. And I, I know that feeling well. Um, and if I I suppose if I put my therapist part on for a moment, I think about what I might say to a client in that situation. And I suppose my reaction would be we show compassion for the emotion and we challenge the underlying beliefs driving the emotion, right? So the guilt um, is also uh, an emotional part of you. I suppose I would be curious towards uh, the origins of the guilt as well. It could be different for different people. Am I uh, afraid that something's going to happen to my client if I don't complete that report? Um, Am I concerned that my client's going to be angry at me (laughs) if I don't do my work? Am I concerned that I'm going to look bad compared to my um, my colleagues, you know, so that guilt could be any number—a mix of different emotions—and I suppose um, also identifying some of those thoughts that come with it, which are "I should do this in order to be a good therapist." I must, you know, we're sort of identifying our own conditional beliefs about what it means to be uh, an appropriate professional in our field, and, and challenging some of that while showing self-compassion.
4: And there may be some validity in those shoulds and musts when it comes to the actual content of what you're doing, writing reports, et cetera, but there's no validity in saying that bloke down the end is seeing 15 patients a day, clients a day, so I should be too. That's not valid. You, you cannot make that, that um, condition on yourself. And I wonder whether is a linked to this
1: very new trend that's been tracked by economists um, that suggests that busyness is somehow increasing our sense of value as a worker? So whether you're actually being productive or not, being busy seems to be linked to our self-esteem um, at the moment, right? Um, and that might be one of the core beliefs that's starting to develop. This busyness gives us some sort of a status. Um, and, and I wonder whether, you know, the healthcare profession, the discipline itself, lends itself to presenteeism. Benvinda, we talked a little bit about how there's not much of a break in between, you know, those training milestones before, you know, uh, the first step is to actually go into a hospital and, and do your first placement. And then after that is specializing in it. Uh, it's, the, it's the discipline itself, you know, um, encouraging that presenteeism.
2: Um I think it uh, well with uh, with medicine, it definitely um I would describe um you know, this is only uh, my own personal uh, you know sort of um, opinion on it, but i I could describe it as being on a roller coaster without a break. um there is the there's always something in the moment which is got which has the une- unexpected anxiety of what's going to happen around this next corner or this next dive, and that starts straight from the time of um, getting into medicine um, or getting into any of the other um, you know sort of healthcare fields, and then straight into a particularly arduous and, and demanding course, um, and. Towards the end, uh, where you can just think, oh, take a breath, um, I'm going to suddenly, you know, I'm going to get my, um, my credentials, then there's the next hurdle, where am I going to go now? More so uh, in, in my time, you know, when I was an intern, you just automatically went. You knew where you were going. Um, I came out of New South University, I had a spot up at Prince of Wales, I didn't even have to think about it. Now uh, there are, uh, you know, these young people are, are trying to sort out how to manage or where to get their internship. I believe uh, there was talk that in some states there were, you know, shortage of intern positions. Um, so and once the internship starts, then there's the thought of, oh, what am I going to do? Am I going to go out into general practice? Again, general practice in the past, you just set up a shingle. As long as you did your intern year, I think most of us were not crazy enough to go straight from a hospital, you know, internship and, and off we go into, um, into general practice. But we, after, you know, two or three years, you could do that. Now it's a training in itself. And that decision has to be made pretty much early on because of the sort of terms you're going to do as an internal choose to do as electives if you're thinking of then specialising. So this roller coaster never stops, um, and it is a feeling, a really uneasy feeling. Um, so I, and you have to be there in the present, but with the uncertainty of what you're doing in the present, how is it going to
4: translate in your future? Given the stresses of these jobs, you'd think we'd be encouraged to look after ourselves, wouldn't you?
2: Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I'm, um, I'll i just take a quick opportunity when you were all saying about what you do with the, the guilt. Um, I can maybe sort of my only... Um, my only um, offer of any sort of uh, perspective on that is through my retrospective, um, you know, sort of uh, cap. And with my retrospective cap, I now can sort of say um, that always remember that what we're doing is trying to help patients and in one way or another and that um, I, I now look at myself and I say, well, I'm just as human. And uh, unless I take care of myself, then I'm of no use to anybody. Um, And I tend to try and live by that mantra. But does it always work? Definitely not. Um, But effectively I think uh, if you can start looking at it that way, I wish I had 20 years ago Mm -hmm. Uh, because definitely uh, 13-hour days would not be on
4: my radar (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> mm. this, this sort of leans into working out what you need to do to, for your own personal survival and accepting whatever it is that you need, personally need to do in order to survive emotionally and physically and spiritually and all those things.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly, Jan. Uh, it is a, it is, a, and that's the thing, Jan. It's the um, taking the breather, which is part of when we're talking about the presentism. Where do we get the time or afford ourselves that breathing space? Because. Um, you know, as a female uh, coming home from a long day at work or whatever sort of job you do, and if you've got children, then thinking, well, my next priority, I have to spend time with the, the children, maybe taking the breather of, well, I have to spend time with myself, um, even if it's just for a half an hour, somewhere along the line, and being able to sort out, like you're saying, Jan, what is it that I need to be able to provide my children and I, I focus on children. I know that was one of my big areas that I felt I was deficient in. Um, you know, take the time to know what you need before you can actually then give to your profession, to yourself personally, and and to the family, which I think is what we we as professionals often don't do. <laughs> so. It's
1: pretty- Speaking of burnout, you know, and presenteeism, um, and and some of the tips that we've shared today, Jen, I'm cycling back to you now. And what do you think are some of the um, challenges that we might be facing now to our well-being during COVID nineteen?
4: I think as a community, we're facing a whole range of challenges, ranging from the obvious like work loss and financial distress to, for those of us who haven't been victim of the economic changes, to simple things like isolation and changes in our style of working. I know for this audience, probably the shift to telehealth has been a huge leap uh, and I've loved it, but then again, I do uh, mental health only as a general practitioner, so for me it's been, been reasonably easy and I'm not trying to assist new clients. I'm, I've got a cohort of patients that I've seen for a long time, so their telehealth isn't a barrier. But I know that for many psychologists that I talk to, um, it's been a big leap. Um, what was it like for you, Bazia? Yeah,
3: it's been a mixed bag. Yeah. Um... You've raised the issue there of of current clients, so clients who were already well engaged Mm. with it was probably a little bit easier and, again, mixed depending on on each person and what their preference was. Um, Some challenges with young people in terms of connectivity or having a private space to be able to talk to their psychologist, being in a safe place while they're talking, with new clients, really challenging to be able to kind of use our core rapport building skills. You know, we sort of joked a little bit about how there'd be a silence and, and you know, you'd find yourself saying, like, are you just, are you, are you thinking, are you still there? <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm trying to hold the space, but what's actually happening? You know, um, obviously concern for clients who who where there's an increased level of concern or risk. Um, so really, a mixed bag. A lot of practitioners reporting feeling quite isolated and, and probably more tired at the end of the day. Mm. And for GPs in particular, there's
4: been the added stress of exposure to coronavirus, oh, and, and and yeah. this and exposing their families to coronavirus if they get get exposed to it themselves. That was pre- very much the issue early in the in the the. Uh, time of coronavirus, mind you, I don't think we're out of the time of coronavirus just yet, and there are a lot of anxieties associated with it, and there's much to talk about in terms of the way the world's changing and the way life's changing as a result of this pandemic But again, we need to look after ourselves. And if you haven't got a GP and your health practitioner, you need to get a GP. If you are a GP, you need to get a GP to talk to not just about your physical health, but also about the stresses you're under. So what do you think are
1: the big barriers to GPs? We'll start with GPs first. We can go to clinical psychologists with Basha. What do you think? And they may be the same, same factors, right? What do you think are the barriers to GPs seeking help? Me or Ben? Both of you can. But we might go to Ben first and then come back to you, Jan. Um, I think
2: uh, it goes back, uh, one, to um, like Barsha uh, touched on character traits, which I think are very common, you know, that underlie or commonality in a lot of uh, doctors. Um, I, a lot of pride, uh, I think, in my younger years. I, I, I should have known um, that I, simply I've got a strong family history of significant mental illness um, and I ignored a lot of the the signs and I didn't have a GP. That that was the one of the things. Um, I think that as carers, um, you know, in our profession primarily, uh, we're not taught um how to take care of ourselves or the necessity to to take care of ourselves. Um, as I said, we go into a course that you just start studying um, and there's nothing integrated into the course. And I still believe that although it's getting a bit better, it's not really integrated properly um, into the necessity to actually seek help. And this goes to um, also there was a question where somebody asked um, asked me what would I think would have helped in those in those days. And I think what would have been of great help was if there had been some, a bit of more in the structure of our course, which doesn't have to uh, be all encompassing, but something that touched on the, uh, the um, human factor of actually uh, going to, into a profession where you are actually, you know, most of the time taking care of somebody else and how you can take care of yourself and some very practical advice, like getting a GP, because, um, and there is also, there was always the idea of uh, how acceptable, um, or, you know, the stigma, uh, which was, you know, was a lot more hidden in those days, Um, the stigma of saying, look, I'm really struggling with depression. So if there was a bit more, uh, in a formalised manner, where I could have felt that this was acceptable, um, then I think that it would have been
1: much easier
4: to have something just to talk.
1: What about you, Jan? Do you think it's hard for GPs to find? the right GP?
4: I absolutely think it's hard for GPs to find the right GP and I have to confess that I've only just in the last couple of years found somebody that I can I'm happy to talk to. She's just got the most wonderful manner and and while she knows I'm a colleague she doesn't expect me to solve all my own problems and that basically leads me to Uh, I don't know if you know, uh, Carol, and uh, all the participants, that I facilitated a webinar for the E-Mental Health in Practice Project about three weeks ago on this very subject. And within that webinar, we did some polls about what the barriers were for practitioners to seek help. There were about 700 participants in the webinars that we did too. And when we talked about the barriers, uh, far and away, the most important barrier for people, you know, mandatory reporting aside, was that they felt that they should be able to solve their own mental health problems and that it was associated with huge embarrassment to go and see somebody because of, that meant that they were a failure as a mental health professional and also they were afraid of judgment. from the practitioner that they went to see. And that was about 50% of the participants in in those two webinars. And for me, I felt that was very sad. But I have a story. When I, as a first-year medical student, went to see the doctor about, I don't know, something else and burst into tears and couldn't stop, that doctor did not ask me why I was crying. And I think as general practitioners in the olden days, there were some considerable deficiencies in terms of looking after people's mental health. And for me, that experience is why I have never been able to go and see somebody when I've been feeling stressed. I did a master's in order to look after myself. Um, And how many of us do our mental health training for that reason? (laughs) So, So I just think it's important to know that that's one of the main barriers for GPs Yeah, absolutely. And there's investment in the sense that they need to fix themselves. There's also stuff like what if I'm I'm mandatorily reported as being impaired? Um, uh, I can't afford it. I can't find a decent GP when it comes to mental health. All sorts of other issues, but um, that was the most important one.
1: Well, speaking of the mandatory report, what are the regulations around mandatory report for GPs if they do have a mental health challenge? This is a question that comes up quite often, I believe, for doctors. They're really afraid of going and seeing another GP and maybe needing a psychologist. And even I think I, I think this is for our profession as well, Varsha, right? And then getting a mental health care plan and all of a sudden there's this belief that a flag goes up for reporting that somehow they'll get deregistered. You know what? uh,
4: Sorry, Jan, you go first. People make much more of a fuss about this than is necessary because if you read the legislation, and I've got a quote here in front of me, let let me find the right one and I'll read it to you, a health condition and an impairment are not the same thing. And with the exception of sexual misconduct, you should only make a notification if you believe there is a substantial risk of harm to the public through the impairment and that person practising. And and mandatory reports are dependent on context too. If someone is uh, uh, in... Successfully in treatment, for example, they don't need to be mandatorily reported. If they are are limiting the way they practice to a practice that they know they can manage given their impairment, then no report needs to be made for them. Mandatory reporting is only if the condition is impairing them significantly to the extent that the public are, are at risk as a result of their impairment. So, It's not across the board. And there's been a lot of misunderstanding about that that I hope has been cleared up in the most recent changes to the legislation, which were, I think, late last year, the middle of last year. I don't know. Time flies. It's really hard to know when things happen. But it's only relatively recently that the other states were brought in line with Western Australia um, almost. Western Australia has no mandatory reporting by treating health professionals at all
1: uh this speaks into question from damien as well because um damien's just put up a question here looking at income protection insurance um and they you know his concern is that if you do see a healthcare professional this might this might actually avoid insurance um benvinda you're shaking your head no
2: um look Maybe, uh, I think a mandatory reporting needs to be demystified, uh, really. And I think um, this is one avenue that I think uh, needs to be addressed um, generally um, in all our courses um, because I I think most people have, you know, have this fear understanding of mandatory reporting. Like um, Jan was saying, uh, and and there has been a most recent change, and that was on uh, March the 1st of this year, um, where effectively uh, they've, uh, you know, sort of increased the the level um, that it's harder for a treating doctor or a treating person to actually have reason to mandatory report. Um, and what uh, what has to be understood about mandatory reporting is that it really isn't punitive. I, I've actually worked for, uh, as a medico-legal advisor for one of our uh, MDA national and uh, was the support doctor for a few doctors who were, you know, sort of under health care, you know, sort of uh, or mental health care care um, uh, Programs and so forth, and uh, I can say that the whole idea of mandatory reporting, although it is to be to um, protect the general population, um, it is not to be punitive. What they want, like Jan said, is to make sure that people um, are developing an insight into how they're functioning and seeking help. So if you have a psychiatrist, I've had a psychiatrist for 14 years. Um, So if you've had a psychiatrist, if you've got a psychologist, if you've got a mental health care plan, there is no reason to be mandatorily reported. There are very significant, it's if you are seen that you are functioning in a way that you can cause substantial harm to to somebody. Um, So otherwise, it doesn't matter what you have. If you have Parkinson's and you effectively have a tremor and continue to uh, refuse to stop doing procedural work, and somebody thinks, well, you may cause harm, that can be mandatorily reported. It doesn't have to be a mental illness. So um, as far as insurance goes, the insurance insurers are becoming a bit more difficult with uh, providing a wide, um, you know, a wide-scoped insurance on somebody who's got a, a significant uh, history of, of mental health issues. Um, personally, I've had three hospital admissions. I've got a, a income protection um, and those hospital admissions were all voluntary admissions for mental health, uh, significant depression. Um, I've got income protection, but I'm now 62. Uh, my insurer has put an exclusion clause of if it's going to be about mental health, I'm excluded. And I found it difficult to get anybody who would cover me with my history But as a younger woman, I had life insurance and and all that sort of stuff, and I declared that I had significant depression and I was covered in my my earlier years. Um, You don't automatically lose if you've got your insurance. You will get into trouble if you don't declare it. And then, you you know, you've had um, connections with a psychiatrist, um, or a psychologist, you've got a mental health care plan, you go and take out an insurance policy and don't declare that. So as long as you declare it and the insurer is quite, uh, quite um, happy to cover you, you don't have problems. It's when you don't declare it and they can say that you already had problems beforehand.
4: From an insurer's point of view, there's a big difference between a serious mental health condition, you know, a, that's not to say what I'm, the next part of my sentence is, doesn't mean a serious condition, but there's a big difference between psychosis or bipolar disorder, a, a chronic, severe, Uh, ongoing condition and somebody who's experiencing burnout or work stress or, or panic attacks related to personal circumstances or even a unipolar depressive illness. So there's a huge difference between those things, even from the uninformed insurers point of view.
3: Well, I think a lot of what I'm thinking about as you're talking, a a big part of the destigmatization and normalization here is that, of course, we have human reactions to the circumstances of our clients and our patients. And feeling strong emotions about our work is a really normal. Um, normal experience doesn't necessarily make us deficient, or you know, having personal experiences um, both in the healthcare and the mental healthcare system is really normal for healthcare providers, and can in fact be an enormous strength um, in healthcare provision. Um, and yeah, yeah, and I think that that's a, that those conversations informally um, have a really play a really big part in destigmatizing and allowing people. Um, to access services when they need them. We saw this uh, play out beautifully with uh, with the JMOs when we were running the, the wellbeing workshops, which was um, we would try to sort of have this conversation normalising, destigmatizing. and then if there was one JMO in the room who would raise their hand and say, I've done it, I went and got a mental health care plan and I went to a psychologist, and you would just see 20 other faces go, oh, my God, yeah, look, I, I could do that too, you know? <laughs> Um, it's incredibly powerful and I think that that's an avenue that that is available you know for everyone who's here obviously uh uh, in the webinar and and thinking about these issues you know we have a lot of power um in in uh, a unofficial capacity to be speaking openly with colleagues and friends about our experiences that normalizes this for them as well absolutely
1: so I've got a Pretty big question. We're heading towards the last 15 minutes. Do you think that there are any things specific about the discipline or organization that make individuals, even if they weren't perfectionistic in the first place, even if they weren't you know, self-sacrificing and they came into medicine or psychology, um, do you think, we'll start with medif- medicine first, are there any organizational factors that you would like to change to make it more supportive for well-being? Um, we might start with Barsha for this one because it was originally your question and I think actually ben Binda and, and Jan would, would have something to say about this as well.
3: I, I imagine so, yeah. So there's a wide range of organisational factors that have been investigated in many, many research um, studies. If I was able to just sort of say one thing is um, there is a huge amount of evidence and support for trauma-informed practice um, for providers as much as for our clients. Um, we prioritise trauma-informed care for the vast majority of our clients and patients and um, and that can also be done for providers and, and that is associated with empowerment and strong communication, um, good service pathways. There are a lot of organisational factors that relate to these kinds of practical difficulties in terms of how service providers are treated within a system that can be fundamentally disempowering and fundamentally traumatising for the healthcare provider, um, which can go on to um, further emphasise difficulties of, you know, the individual difficulties within the system itself. So, yeah, that would be really, that's something I feel very strongly about is implementing trauma-informed practice at organisational levels to help support support providers in the organisation.
1: What about you, Ben Vinda? If there was one thing you could change about the organisation or discipline, your discipline, to really better support mental health, maybe for junior doctors, um, what would you change?
2: Um, I would change um, the undergraduate or what you know, mm-hmm. the uh, the student um, training. Um, and when I say that, I mean not not the the clinical and all that kind of stuff, but they've managed um, over the years, something that I find interesting now is that they've introduced into the course, um, you know, sort of a whole uh, a, a whole term of medico-legal um, training. Um, you know, sort of how to identify medical legal issues and whatever, and that reflects the like I was saying, the society that that we now practice in, because we as in 1982 or 76 or whatever when I first started, there was no no such thing as as that sort of um, focus. So I think it could be done with having a term about. Um, you know, broaching the pathways that come after after graduation, um, broaching issues that we're discussing, and you know, just showing showing the the young students who are going to be our future doctors or psychologists or whatever that there is recognition that this does this may be a factor in the future. Um, and making them understand that opening up and avenues with the people that they can open up with um, so that there's a foundation where individually um, these students are not, if they're experiencing issues and as Basia said, there's a huge amount of it um, that if they are experiencing, they, they don't feel isolated that they're experiencing it by themselves. And I think that has to be broached uh, before the roller coaster, you know, really starts taking on speed. Um, and that's what I would change.
1: This links up quite nicely with Jill Buckfield's mention that you know she was quite surprised that GPs don't have supervision requirements that clinical psychologists do, um, which is just getting together with a mentor to inform our practice. But sometimes there's a little bit of mentoring as well, that work-life balance. And what do you think,
4: Jan? Do you think that would help? Do GPs get supervision? Can I just say that supervision is a dirty word in medicine. Why? Uh, <laughs> it, it has connotations of being questioned, of your judgment being questioned, of of people losing control over the their way they practice. It's uh, it, we haven't grown up with supervision in the same way that psychologists have grown up with supervision. So, yes, but yes, I agree, there's a real need for something along those lines, whether it's mentorship, whether it's peer support, formal peer support, whether it's violent groups, we need to do that in general practice. But uh, much as many of us have spoken to the colleges about introducing something like this, I think it's a little way off before oh. that becomes part of GPs CPD requirements. Is that your sense of it, Ben?
2: Yeah, uh, I think so, Jan. And and I think that um, I think we're probably a f- quite a few years off. We've still, uh, just like you. Um uh, I think we uh, you, you described your uh, that internship or you know your, as a student. Um, well, uh, just to show why I think it's probably a way a bit way off is because we've still got a, a huge um, you know sort of group of GPs of Jan and my era. Um, and mental health was not at all uh, something that was discussed a lot. When, I, when I, I had my first hospital admission back in 2002, went from a totally, you know, super-functioning um, GP to one day waking up and I, I was paralysed with um, mental and physical, just couldn't move, basically. So I uh, went to... I didn't have a general practitioner. Uh, the, uh, on organising the, the um, my admission to a hospital... I got advised to uh, go and get a referral from a GP. So I uh, stepped into the offices of a GP um, up here in Sydney and uh, it's still in my mind that I wa- walked into that office. I looked absolutely horrific apparently um, and effectively uh, this doctor, male doctor, looked at me and said, um, oh, you should have known better.
4: Oh, great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talk okay. about stigma yeah, there.
2: Yeah. I'll mm, mm, that. Mm. And unfortunately, that hasn't totally gone away. There is a huge group mm. of people who still practice that way, so it's going to be a while to, to get get rid well, of that attitude.
4: One of the things we fought was that, that philosophy amongst the older members of the medical profession that they had to do it, so, so should we. Yeah. And, and along with that comes the competitiveness and and you know for me that's totally toxic the competitiveness of of medicine um where where Um, any sign of of weakness was seen as failure so weakness because you're working 12 hour shifts back to back for three days um, and you're not coping with it you know I mean you're obviously personally not up to this why don't you go find a different job Um, that sort of attitude whilst not as pervasive as it once was is still there and I think Um, It it sort of seeps into people's cores and that's part of the reason that they don't seek help because they don't want to be seen to be a failure as a person.
1: It's, It's so strange. I mean, Basha, you must find this as well, that supervision is a dirty word in the medical profession and it's like a wonderful word for support and ongoing collegiate connection for psychologists.
3: It feels like a privilege in
1: psychology. Absolutely. Yeah. And we wouldn't go without it. It's just part of our entire career. It's just, you know, you have to organise supervision and we love discussing cases and it's a way of connecting with each other in our profession. And it sounds like it's a bit of a cultural change. Now, Jan, we're running down to the final few minutes and I really would like us to talk a little bit about some of the resources that are available Um, through Black Dog and other places as well. So I've popped it up on the screen if you can see. Joan, can you speak to some of the the resources we have for people looking for help if you are in the healthcare profession?
4: Absolutely. Look, one of the great things that COVID-19 has done is create a whole raft of resources for health professionals to seek support. Um, And one of the greatest things, of course, I'm slightly biased, is this... uh, um, federally funded initiative um, from the Black Dog Institute, which is called TEN, the Essential Network. So TEN for short, T-E-N. This is actually a platform that you can get to either via an app from the app store called TEN or via the Black Dog Institute website and the page is there in front of you, the URL for the TEN page. What the Essential Network provides is resources for helping people survive COVID-19 health professionals and helping them manage the emotional turmoil that COVID-19 has created and also links to things like the Black Dog Institute online clinic uh, which is a free assessment clinic that's available to everybody to um, complete questionnaires anonymously and get some feedback about how they're coping at the moment. There's also um, the links to the peer support network provided by Hand in Hand. Now, if you don't know about Hand in Hand, it's an important thing for you to know about because Hand in Hand was established this year by a young woman who was the wellbeing officer at Cairns Hospital last year. Now, that's something that should be in hospitals all over Australia, a wellbeing officer to support the, the, in that instance, it was the doctors. But Hand in Hand is has evolved to be a support network for all health professionals, both in Australia and New Zealand. And what happens is that that if you contact hand in hand, you can be referred, you'll be assessed first by a psychiatrist over the phone, and they will refer you either to a volunteer peer supporter for either one to one peer support, or for group peer support, whichever you have expressed a preference for, uh, or they will refer you to to um, a, a practitioner um, for specific treatment. So, and you can actually volunteer if you're a mental health practitioner to be a support person, a peer supporter with hand in hand, as well as refer yourself there for support. Well, now if we can go back a slide, Carol, I can talk a little bit more about what else is in 10 apart from the the, um, hand in hand network. But I don't think Carol has worked out how to make the slides go backwards. Okay, so the 10 network also includes links to the This Way Up programs, which until the 30th of June, the This Way Up programs are actually free of charge to anybody who enrols in them. I don't know if you're aware of that. They've made all those $59 Um, diagnosis-specific programs that are available from This Way Out free during COVID-19, but that finishes on the 30th of June. So if you think you need a bit of help with your depression or mindfulness or you need a bit of help with managing your anxiety and and an online course might help you, then go to This Way Out quickly before you have to pay $59 for it. There's also information on the 10 uh, Essential Network page about linking to psychiatrists and, of course, linking to emergency helplines. And this is an evolving project and is going to go on to include a database of health professionals who are willing to treat other health professionals and um, also links to the actual um, telehealth clinic that's provided by Black Dog Institute. They're not there at the moment, but they will be there soon. So keep an eye out on the TEN app and for the and the, the website page, if you prefer, for the new the evolution of ten. Thank you, Jan, for that. Hopefully, everyone finds that useful. Um, what we've got
1: here is um, some online tools for you, and also we're onto our last page. If you have any questions, look, those slides went by very quickly, um, and you might not have gotten all the URL and all the links. Please do email us um, on this particular um, email, so education at blackdog.org.au for any information that you might have missed um, while we were talking (laughs) quite quickly towards the end about these fantastic support resources. And, of course, we've missed a few questions. We're so sorry we couldn't get to it because we had some really great questions tonight from the audience. But thank you for being part of tonight's podcast and I just wanted to say a really warm thanks to our incredible panel members um, for for participating tonight, some really great stories and some really great tips and resources. All right, everyone. Good night. We'll see you later. Good night. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, Subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.